Hello folks, welcome back to the Social Life of Energy. Today I'm reading out two newsletters for the price of one. Because a few weeks ago I attended a couple of interesting talks about social innovation. And I thought it would be nice to present you with some key takeaways. The first talk was part of a panel about green frontiers in energy transitions by Jamie Cross on a better solar lamp. The second was the opening keynote presentation of a rather massive two-day conference on social innovation in energy by Patrick Devine-Wright on the value of place and place attachment in responsible and responsive innovation. Both presented evocative examples of how to do innovation collaboratively and realize social and environmental values. I'll start with Jamie Cross's presentation. If you'll remember, I actually started out this whole series on social entrepreneurship in sustainable energy with a discussion of Jamie Cross's research on solar lanterns. He tracked the efforts of solar lantern entrepreneurs to achieve some takeoff scale for their products through the UN's and other NGOs' refugee assistance in West Africa in order to open up the market there. It's an interesting read about opening up or, in fact, making the market. Well, it turns out that Cross is something of an entrepreneur himself. Together with his students and colleagues at Edinburgh and Nairobi, he's been building a more sustainable solar lamp and trying to bring it to market. Why? Well, that's where the notion of green capitalism comes in. The basic idea behind this notion is simple. Just because it's a market in sustainable technologies doesn't mean the market doesn't reproduce capitalism's built-in tendencies towards exploitation, inequality, and crisis. It may be green, but it's still capitalism. Green capitalism. Trademark. This notion, in fact, is the whole point of this series on social entrepreneurship. To explore ways in which we could maybe do markets differently. To not just call it a day after swapping out fossil fuel devices for electric ones, because making our presence on this planet sustainable impels us to question some of the most ingrained ways of doing things, ingrained over the course of some 200 years of industrial, and thus fossil-fueled, capitalism, and which we've come to accept as natural. Extirpating these ways of doing is hard, and the answers to this question must come from many different sources and perspectives. But at least social innovation presents an emerging methodology for entrepreneurial spirits to take up the challenge and a way for governments to help them on their quest. Sustainable design as critique. All right, back to Jamie. So what specifically is the problem with solar lamps? Well, they, quote, continue the extractivist logic, unquote, of conventional carbon economies and mass consumer goods, the exploitation of both labor and nature. As it turns out, nobody has made an effort to make these lamps recyclable or repairable. They come with a pretty terrible year and a half average lifespan, after which it will produce 300 grams of electronic waste. And the materials they use aren't particularly eco-friendly either. So how renewable is this really? 
as this very dynamic and innovative sector of the solar lamp is preparing to go big after the recent global compact to power 1 billion lives, also reiterated at COP26, which will combine government and investor funding, this is a bit of a problem. So, rather than sitting on the sidelines, Cross decided to get creative and move from a desk critique to a design critique. What would a sustainable, repairable solar lamp look like and how would you get it built? Introducing the solar what? And I quote Jamie Cross from the panel discussion. It doesn't include any glues or adhesives. The electronic circuitry is sourced from accountable suppliers who meet minimum international labor organization conventions on labor rates. The whole unit is designed to be taken apart and repaired by anybody who uses it. And the design is entirely open source. Now, this design is a way to enter into a critical conversation with manufacturers that would not be possible with just another report. A material conversation, if you will. It's also a different sort of critique. If you see designs as world-making, as Cross does, then trying to make the world differently is to, quote, become part of the struggles between carbon and post-carbon worlds, end quote. Democratizing design. Design as critique ran through the whole project. First, students disassembled the lambs that Cross brought back from the field. Seeing how they were built to disallow repair, to trace the materials back to their problematic sources, allowed these students to understand relations of power embedded in the lambs in more acute ways. It thus heightened their critical sensibilities. But then building an alternative also showed the limits of critique by design. The first student do-it-yourself assemblies of alternative solar lamps used non-industrial, that is to say organic, and scrap materials. Definitely more sustainable, but the prototype was also too far beyond what could be integrated into chains of productions for actual solar lamp companies. The quote-unquote conversation was therefore limited. The challenge that it posed to existing practices was feeble. So, to bolster their pitch to the manufacturers, investors and trade associations, they contracted a local manufacturer, local that is to say from Edinburgh, to use a kind of plastic to build a more easily reproducible prototype and they focused on another angle to reduce waste, to disaggregate the solar panel from the lamp, which are currently always sold as one unit. Guerrilla interventions and systemic change. This is still a project in motion. In Cross's own current evaluation, this design critique has been successful, but its success has been limited. While the solar watt has been well-received and acclaimed even in the industry, it has not been able to really disrupt quote-unquote rational, efficient change of production and distribution. Dominic Boyer, a discussant in a panel, was more optimistic though. As we increase the kinds of design interventions that Damie Cross has led, we might find out that what seems like an unassailable system, fossil-fueled, extractivist, and efficient capitalism, is actually vulnerable and subject to subversion and conversion. I therefore hope this inspires you to persevere in your own guerrilla attacks on unsustainable systems and attempts to change them from within.
Alright, moving on to a scholar I presume needs no introduction. Patrick Divine Wright. Divine Wright, of course, is known for destroying the notion of nimbyism by pointing out how resistance was often due to a lack of adequate participation in decision-making processes. But the notion was also a reason to start thinking about people's attachment to a place and how that might be a positive force in participation rather than ground for rejection in participation processes, as in, my place doesn't deserve your wind turbines. His research on participation has kind of naturally evolved towards the idea of social innovation as an example of the good kind of participation. And yes, place helps to understand why these approaches can work. So let's take a closer look. To start off, what does social innovation mean for divine right? Well, for him, it's basically a gloss for co-creation. Co-creation means taking people seriously, not only by actually listening to them, but also by sharing power over the course of a shared effort. In an earlier presentation this year for the European-funded SHIFT project, Divine Wright specified some basic rules about what that means. It means that people's input, one, has to be organized early, two, it has to be substantial, three, it has to actually be implemented, and four, even defended if the results come up to resistance from, say, local administrators. So, what can attention to place and people's attachments to place add to the stipulations about social innovation and co-creation? A world of places. That phrase comes from sociologist Tim Criswell, and it means that for us human beings, places matter and places differ. We look out from them, as he puts it. That maybe sounds a bit fluffy, but in a very down-to-earth sense, it means that places have histories. People have experienced things there, ranging from their first forays into romance, to daily strolls with a dog, to, perhaps ill-conceived, rollouts of rehabilitation projects. These experiences inform how people respond to new ideas and propositions, and they shape their willingness and ability to come up with their own ideas and propositions. If you therefore want to set something in motion, you won't be able to get around these idiosyncrasies of places. So, best to understand them, work with them, and build on them. Divine Right does add an important side note, which is to warn us to not stare blindly on specific localities either. People also experience things that transcend the local and go beyond whatever quote-unquote energy topic you might want to work on with them. So think precarity in labor markets, pandemic restrictions, structural inequalities, or the slow politics of quote-unquote green growth, leveling up, or build back better. Aside from that side note, you now have the basic gist of social innovation and place. So let's see how we can put these two together in practice. Zero Carbon Rugli. An inspiring example comes from Rugli, a town of 25,000 just north of Birmingham. A town that has innovation in its genes because it was the very place where the first telephone call via Telstar satellite was made. 
the project Zero Carbon Brookley builds on this rich tradition and is turning the space of a decommissioned coal plant into a smart and green local energy district through a state-of-the-art process involving a multi-stakeholder partnership of private energy companies, a university, a theater company to do the animation, a solar cooperative, and more. An approach with co-creation at its heart. Uniquely, a third of the budget was dedicated to quote-unquote user-centric design. Nor was that money to be spent by some lonesome participation professional either, but it cut across the whole project, which is a necessary prerequisite for participation to go beyond tokenism. As one interviewee from Zero Carbon Rookly explained, instead of educating users and trying to sell them on some technology, we start with the people, their needs, and then see what we could change accordingly. End quote. Finally, it is an approach that takes local specificity seriously. Thus, it recognizes that Rugli was already an energy place with its coal plant. And in fact, trying to redevelop that site has made it more central to people's perception of their own history and heritage. So the guiding question became, can we build a narrative that will stitch the coal past to a zero carbon future? Divine Right then offered some concepts to help understand why this particular approach is so valuable. Firstly, when you propose to renovate a district or upgrade the heating system, you are transforming a foundational framework through which people experience themselves and the world. That should give pause to any well-meaning, enthusiastic policymaker or eager energy company. Tread lightly. As Divine Right says, you can't just treat people as users or consumers or adopters because they are also denizens, dwellers in the place you are proposing to remake. In justice literature terms, we would say that not doing so would fail to recognize this part of people's lives. And doing so can lead the even well-meaning to pave the road to planning hell. This was actually the case recently in a town near Liverpool, a case that Divine Right also reviewed in that same presentation, where a shale gas fracking company wanted to develop a new site and chose to define community stakeholders in a very narrow, legalistic way, excluding people who lived in what was the same social space but happened to be across some jurisdictional boundary. Those people outside the thus ill-defined community were left unrecognized. The consultation process unmade their place for them. They were extricated from it. Conversely, Rookley Zero Carbon tried to remake the town. People in Rookley were asked to reimagine and reinvest in their locality, to revive the history of Rookley for a post-carbon future. Wisdom sits in places. I imagine that for the well-intentioned, this can be a powerful question to guide self-reflection then. Are we unmaking place for people or are we letting them remake it? At the same time though, co-creation is easier said than done. In fact, I've been thinking about this quite a bit for this newsletter too. It feels like many of you know the theory, but it doesn't always help improve your practice. So I wonder, would it help to see more case studies here? Kind of in depth to really see, or in this case hear, about the complexities and learn from them. 
rather than understand the always simplified postulates, the, the theory, if you will. If you would like to let me know what you would like or need, then please drop me a line at sociallifeofenergy at substack.com. And also, if you know anyone who would be interested in knowing more about the value of place in social innovation, please share this podcast or newsletter with them. Thanks a bunch and take care. Till next time. Thank you.